You're listening to TIP. You have to make big changes, sacrifices, or get really creative on those big three expenses. And then you have to be completely unapologetically opportunistic with your career using those savings. You have to make radically different choices, like not putting your money into a 401k. A 401k is a great way to diversify your wealth to 10% long average returns. It's not a great way to get a shot at early financial freedom and take and take your crack at entrepreneurship or a highly levered real estate investment strategy. Hey guys, in today's episode, I had the good fortune of sitting down and talking with Scott Trench, CEO of Bigger Pockets, to learn about how he first pursued financial independence and then shared his strategies and his book, Set for Life. You'll learn how Scott first got turned onto FI, the bet he placed on himself by leaving his W 2 and joining Bigger Pockets, what his views of the real estate market are in 2024, what his own buy box looks like, and where else he's investing outside of real estate and index funds. Scott is the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets, and he's dedicated his career to helping ordinary Americans build wealth in part through real estate investing. Since joining BP in 2014, Scott has authored the best selling wealth building book, Set for Life, and joined Mindy Jensen as co host of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. He's an active real estate investor in the Denver market and currently manages a private portfolio of about $1.5 million. I really enjoyed this episode as Bigger Pockets and Scott's book, Set for Life, have played a huge part in my own real estate and investing journey. And I think you guys are going to enjoy this one too. And so without further delay, let's dive into today's episode with Scott Trench. Celebrating 10 years, you are listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host, Patrick Donnelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me in today's studio is Mr. Scott Trench. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Great to be here. I'm happy you're able to survive a snowstorm and make it to the office. And and uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I've been a fan of yours. I'm a big fan of Set for Life. It was influential to me and Bigger Pockets has been influential to me. So really looking forward to diving into a lot of different ideas today. But I wanted to start off, you're CEO of Bigger Pockets now, but it always wasn't that way. You kind of started as a cubicle guy, you know, working at a company. I think it was like the worst rated company, you know, of all time or something. I forget the, the Glassdoor rating was not very good. So I wanted to hear about about those early days of yours, just like working, you know, you, you come out of college, you're working this cubicle job. Talk to me a little bit about that and just how the search and interest and hunt for financial independence got started for you. Yeah, sure. So in, uh, in 2012, I was uh, between my junior and senior year of college and I got an internship at a, a Fortune 500 company here in the Denver, Colorado area. Uh, and the internship was wonderful. I had a great time with my friends. I made a bunch of friends, got a job offer, and then decided to accept it and had my job lined up for my entire senior year college, basically, and moved out and started that job in 2013 in the uh, late summer. And um, within a couple of months, I realized that while well, the internship was great, and while I you know, make a big deal about the worst company rated in America, it was at the time I worked there. That was a true story. But I wasn't mistreated or anything. I had good colleagues. I had, you know, reasonable work, reasonable pay, all that kind of stuff. 
I just realized that there was no uh, long-term upside for me in the way that I wanted to, to advance my career. It would take you know 20 years to move into the C-suite if I was very fortunate and lucky. And had a number of, of really good moves, and I had, you know, I was ambitious, and I was starting to catch the bug for this concept called financial independence, retire early. Probably a couple months into that journey, I was studying how to be a better financial analyst. I'm putting myself back 12 years. I think I was studying to become a better financial analyst, how to, be, you know, and you know, learning about finance and the concept of personal finance came up, and that led eventually to. I think the mad scientist to Mr. Money Mustache, who was really the big influence on me. And, you know, you know, the aha moment came while the diving deeply into his content. So once I got the bug for financial independence in late 2013, early 2014, a series of cascading events led to me joining Bigger Pockets. I started listening to the Bigger Pockets podcast. I started uh, meeting up with a group of local real estate experts and entrepreneurs. And I took each of them out to lunch because I was lucky to be a part of that group. I kind of happened upon it serendipitously. One of them happened to work in the same co-working space as the founder of Bigger Pockets, Josh Dorkin. I was a big fan personally of Josh and more broadly of the Bigger Pockets business. And so I uh, said hi, bugged him a couple of times and eventually got an interview and uh, became the third employee, the director of operations at Bigger Pockets. There are other people that were technically working there. I was the third full-time employee at Bigger Pockets that was actually employed by the company, not a contractor. So what was that move like? Like moving from a traditional finance company doing analytics and moving towards a much more entrepreneurial kind of startup. I think Bigger Pockets had been around for quite a while at that time, but still it was early days. And you, like you said, you were the third employee. What was that move like? And how did you think about it? Was it a risky thing for you at the time? Yeah. So risk, in my mind, had to do a lot to do with my cash position. And because I was so frugal, thank you, Mr. Money Mustache, I had amassed, you know, probably by the time I joined Bigger Pockets, like $15,000. And by the time I bought my first property, twenty dollars to $25,000, I joined Bigger Pockets in July 2014 and went under contract on my first duplex shortly thereafter. And, you know, my comp was essentially flat between the two companies. My benefits, if anything, were a little worse. At, uh, at bigger pockets to start, uh, small early days. But what was life changing and so awesome about bigger pockets was one, the passion I had for the mission. I was a huge fan of the company. It was changing my life in real time when I joined and the ability to just constantly learn. My days were completely filled with me learning and developing new skill sets. It was expected that I learn how to, I read this blog, learn how to run a split test, you know, two different experiences on the website and see which one gets better engagement, for example, and then go and implement it, you know, in the next day or two. That was like, those would be like regularly given tasks for me. Go figure out this billing platform. And I, I just thrived in that type of environment. That's where I do best is constant learning. No two days are the same. There's always a new challenge. So your initial role was what, director of VP of operations? Yeah, I had a, a string of operations titles over my time at Bigger Pockets. Uh, but yes, it started as director of operations, which at a three-person company means everything from you do revenue to get the coffee, please. So move the car. Yeah. And you, uh, it sounded like you pestered Josh a couple times before he finally was like, okay, we'll give you, we'll give you a chance here. Yeah, he remembers it differently, but I, I seem to remember having to follow up a number of times and interpreting his reaction as me uh, annoying him in the middle of his workday when I said hello. 
I wanted to get into, you mentioned your first deal. Talk to me a little bit about that. You had an interview a few years ago with my former co-host, Robert Leonard. He wrote a book on house hacking. So I wanted to hear, is that, talk to me about the first deal and if that was part of it, was doing a house hack on it. Yeah, the first deal was a duplex. It was in Northeast Denver, uh, $240,000 purchase price, 5% down, $12,000 down payment. The mortgage was $1,550, including principal interest, taxes, and insurance. Other side paid $1,150. I had a roommate paying $550. So it was uh, right there. On, and this was not lavish living, right? This is a, a box, right? 700 square foot each side, flat roof, yard is a disaster, You know, worst house in the block kind of purchase. Uh, I bought it uh, from HUD, which was a huge advantage because at the time, HUD was offering it only to people who wanted to own or occupant. You had an exclusive window for 30 days. And at the time, house hacking was not super popular as a term. So I was not competing against the investors who might have otherwise bought it. And I had some time to just think and react to it. I got to run it by one of the people in that mastermind, for example. And he was like, dude, yeah, you got you to go on this one. If you don't, I'm probably going to be making offers on this in a few weeks. And like those little things, that that network, those connections make all the difference in helping get you over the hump because it's terrifying, right? I mean, if someone going through their first purchase today, you know, relatively speaking, you might have a similar challenge, right? I was making fifty grand, and that property was two hundred and forty thousand dollars, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, if you're looking at something that's five times your annual income, then it's perhaps a similar similar type of dynamic. Let's get into the book a little bit. Set for life. That was a big influence on just my, the way I think about money and finances. Talk to us a little bit about it for our listeners that aren't familiar with it. It came out, what, in 2015? Is that about right? I mean, I mentioned this before we got started, but I'll see a lot of lists on like the best personal finance books that people should read and it's consistently listed. So share with us, like, what is it do you think? I want to hear a little bit about the process of writing it, but first I want to just hear about what is it do you think it is that just strikes a chord in, in the average reader that makes it so important and influential? What I thought at the time, and I definitely, yeah, I think still agree with, is that there was a lot of books written about wealth management, but they were from the perspective of somebody in their 40s, 50s, who had had amassed a large amount of wealth and felt that that kind of was the credibility factor uh, for that. And I think that when, you know, after interviewing a lot of people, what I found is when people go back to the beginnings of their story, it almost always begins with that scrappiness, the frugality, the hustle, those types of mindset. And then I think it mellows the view around money begins to mellow out in the years later, right? And at the time I wrote the book, I was probably five, five, six years into my, my personal finance journey. I had accumulated plus or minus about a million dollars in net worth. And I still had, I'll call it the obsession with financial independence. And the grind mentality that I think, you know, sometimes gets a bad rap. There's the, you know, hustle porn, uh, derogatory comments and all that kind of stuff. But I fully subscribed to that for a good five or six years. And I recall days where I would get, wake up in my duplex, make breakfast while listening to an audiobook, bike the five miles to bigger pockets, work at bigger pockets, bike to rugby practice and come back home. Write a little bit more, and like that would be my day with zero dollars spent. Have a little bit of fun, but really hustle, work, and, and try to accumulate. And I think that the book captures that mentality unapologetically from the perspective of somebody who is right in it and right at the right, you know, like right there on the cusp, if not just over the edge of financial freedom, and knows what it's like in that journey. I think that's what resonates with people is 
is it's unapologetic. It's, it's hey, if you want to get to this thing, you need to save half your income. And that means you're going to make drastically different choices about where you live, how you transport yourself, uh, what you eat, uh, and how you prepare that. You can have fun. You can still you know put, put together a little bit of an entertainment budget. But if you want to get there, you have to make big changes, sacrifices, or get really creative on those big three expenses. And then you have to be completely unapologetically opportunistic with your career using those savings. You have to make radically different choices, like not putting your money into a 401k. A 401k is a great way to diversify your wealth to 10% long average returns. It's not a great way to get a shot at early financial freedom and and take your crack at entrepreneurship or a highly levered real estate investment strategy, for example, which are ways to get there. Um, You have to be willing to take risk and to de-risk that approach with the extreme level, I will call it, of frugality. And I think that's what the book captures. And I'm reciting all this and I'm like, I don't know if I could write that today because I have mellowed out. I don't want to live the way I did five, six, seven years ago. I'm glad I did because I paid a price and was able to amass a pile of assets that now produce a tremendous amount of optionality in my life and the ability to live an upper middle class lifestyle on passive income alone. But I don't want to go through what I went through to get there. But I think that a lot of people do. And if you are willing to do that, that's what I think Set for Life captures. Maybe that that other books don't. And I'm proud of it and a little cringed at it, if you can't tell for my, my diatribe here. There's a different Scott who wrote it. I'm super proud of that, Scott. And I recognize that it it is. It, it like That's the mentality that you have to have if you want to really have that shot at getting ahead here, at least without starting some uber big business. I had an interview last week and the gentleman made the same point that contributing to a 401k is basically it's a bet against yourself. He's like, you shouldn't be, when you're young, you, you should be taking bets on yourself. And you know you can maybe earn eight, nine, 10% interest, but like it's really by putting that money into a 401k, it's really a bet against yourself. I think that's a super interesting point. And I think I completely agree with that. Like, if you're someone, if, like, this is the millennial investing podcast. Surely a lot of people listening to this want to get ahead early in life. And I think that if all of your wealth, and this is the middle class trap, right? The middle class trap is I don't know how many millionaires we've interviewed on Bigger Pockets Money who, hey, I have $500,000 in my home equity. I've got $450,000 in my 401k and Roth, you know, IRA combination of retirement accounts. I've got 25,000 in my after-tax brokerage, $15,000 in my checking and savings, and $7,500 in credit card debt. And it's like, you're almost a millionaire. You are over a millionaire, but you have no ability to leave your job. You'd be broke after a month or two. And I think that's right. I think I think that uh, if more people took those first few years of savings and just amassed 50, 100, something like that outside of the 401k, especially early on, by making those sacrifices, paying the tax man, um, they reap the rewards from optionality to start businesses, buy real estate, all those other kinds of things. The key is though, you have to have the mindset of, I'm going to use it to take my shot and make my bet, not uh, buy a boat or you know a Tesla. Charlie Munger has that quote about like the first $100,000 is a bitch, but you know, being able to save that first 100000 and then figuring out some different options probably makes a lot of sense for people. Yeah. And I wonder you know, if he were here, if he, he wouldn't maybe amend that a little bit to say the first 100,000 after tax is the bitch, right? With that, that's how you really begin to... Or the first 100,000 that you really have that control over. The first 100,000 your home equity you know, happens automatically and doesn't give you that, that control. So in writing the book, we mentioned Mr. Money Mustache, but were there other influences on you that helped with your mental blueprints and how you were thinking about money at that time? 
Yeah. I mean, I went down the rabbit hole of all the, the five folks. So there was the early retirement extreme guy, Jacob Lund Fisker. There was... Um, that was extreme. His stuff was extreme. Yeah. I was like, okay, good. Like his situation for me was super helpful because, and complete respect for the guy. He, he has a wonderful, wonderful uh, setup and has really figured out a lot of things and, and inspired a lot of people. But for me, it kind of normalized Mr. Money Mustache because I was like, oh no, he's the extreme guy. Mr. Money Mustache is the normal one. Uh, and I'm the normal one here with all these things. So that was uh, helpful in a variety of ways, not just the tactics and tips, but also in, in kind of uh, contextualizing what was going on. Bigger Pockets, obviously. The Mad Scientist was another one with uh, uh, Brandon, who he lives in Scotland. So um, yeah, and there was probably there are probably more that I'm forgetting here and that I touched on. But again, that was 10 years ago now. There's another one that was influential to me called, and this was way back. It was written maybe in the 90s, I think, uh, Your Money or Your Life by Vicky Robin and Joe Dominguez. Were, and the big idea was like putting a value on your time. And it's kind of a common thing now. Naval Ravikant has that thing, like put a, a value on on your hourly wage. And if something is you know not worth your time, like pawn it off to somebody else or delegate it or outsource it. But it really gave this idea in Your Money or Your Life about what your time is worth in terms of your life energy and putting a dollar value on that. I'll put Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and The Millionaire Next Door in there yeah. as books that were highly influential as well. Yeah, definitely inspirational. So let's get into real estate in 2024. You and I both got into it you know, about the same time, it sounds like. For somebody that's listening to this in 2024, does real estate make sense in your mind to as a path to wealth? And, and are the opportunities still there? Because a lot of people can be look at, listening at the news with interest rates and all kinds of things saying like, mm, maybe now is not the time. Yeah. you know, So I'll actually start the discussion with the stock market. What is an investment in a US stock market index fund? Well, it's basically a, a bet on the long-term growth and improvement and efficiency gains in the US economy. right? And I think that if you know, if you believe in that long-term bet in growth in the U.S. economy, you're going to place your money in index funds, set it, and forget it for a very long period of time. An investment in U.S. residential real estate is a similar type of bet, right? You're so you're betting on the overall growth of the U.S. wage growth, long-term inflation. You're betting on, in particular, that region that you're investing in, in a property, and you're betting that you will over time get the rewards of appreciation multiplied by leverage. Most investment properties is bought with leverage. So I fundamentally believe in that bet. My portfolio here in Denver, Colorado is a set of properties, duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes. I may purchase single family rentals as well at some point. And I believe long-term in the growth of the US economy. I believe in long-term inflation being at a little over 2%. I believe that in Denver, Colorado specifically, we will see net inbound migration over a long period of time. And we will have supply constraints that constrict new development, mostly in the form of water. We've got plenty of land out here. We don't have a lot of water here in Colorado. Um, and so I believe that we'll experience a greater than 3 to 4% long-term appreciation rate on both prices and rents. And that's why I continue to invest, hold my properties, and intend to buy more over the long term. And I think that's fundamentally what investors have to believe if they're going to get into real estate investing in any sense. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the near term that then you can focus on that then make things harder or that that force creativity or that you know make people have pause. I mean, transaction volume is down dramatically from a peak in 2021 for a reason, right? Both on the investor and homeowner front. So we can get into all that near term stuff. I like to frame it with what is the long-term bet here? Most people aren't buying a, a rental property and holding it for two years. They're holding it for 10 or 15. 
And if you believe that, that's the first starting point. And if you don't, you shouldn't get into real estate. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Okay, so assuming we've got a positive, optimistic view of where the U.S. is going and that growth is going to continue, 
Let's talk next. Like, is now a decent time with interest rates high or should, like I've talked to a couple younger guys who they want to get involved in real estate, but they, they're thinking like, well, maybe I should wait a little longer. Maybe rates will come down or values will come down. Like maybe now's not the time to buy. I know this is kind of case specific, but what would you say to a younger person like who's got some savings ready to make an investment, but they're wondering if now's the time to jump? I think that the right time to invest in a market is one, if you believe the long-term thesis, and two, when your personal financial situation and life circumstances are conducive to it, right? The right time for me to invest in a $500,000 rental property is when I have $125,000 for the down payment, when I have another ten dollars to $15,000 for reserves, and when I have whatever else is going to come up from a planned rehab perspective, whether you know, the portion that I'm not financing, I have the cash on hand to cover that. Because again, you know, if I'm investing in US stock market, right, I'm going to basically dollar cost average every month and add in the surplus that I get from my paycheck or whatever it is and put it into the market on a continuous basis, right? We want to follow the same pattern long term because what we're trying to do here, what I'm trying to do at least as an investor is I want a system where I don't have to be exceptional to win. That's the beauty of index fund investing and why half my portfolio is in index funds, right? Is I don't have to be exceptional. I'm getting a low fee, long-term average here, right? Now, in real estate, we want to pursue some of the inefficiencies. And we'll talk about a good deal uh, later if, if you'd like and how to find that specifically. But we start with a system that is going to produce a great shot at that kind of 15% ROI, at least in the early years when we're fairly leveraged. Because we're doing all this work, we're going to have to probably visit the property. We're going to have to take a look at it. There are, there are fees that are associated with buying real estate. We want a premium over what we can get in the, in the stock market. But the key is here, we need a system where you can be average and still win. And so I think about my portfolio as basically dollar cost averaging every 18 months in real estate. Sometimes I will buy high um, at the wrong point in the, the cycle, and sometimes I'll buy low. And it's really hard to know that. And everyone wants to predict the market cycle in that context. But I think first and foremost, it's I believe in that long-term thesis and I'm going to buy consistently when my position can afford it. I'm never going to put myself in a position where I'm dependent on the property working out to move my financial position forward. So here are some examples of, of things that I think get people into trouble. A HELOC, right? I take a HELOC on my primary and I use it as a down payment on my investment property. Well, this creates huge problem, right? Because I'm financing that, that property. I'm maybe getting a couple hundred dollars a month in cash flow, but I've got I have to repay the HELOC plus interest. So I'm getting a $500 a month cash flow property and I've used a $60,000 HELOC. If I'm paying it back over the next 5 years, that's $1,000 per month in principle before we get to the interest. And that property is going to suck cash out of my life over that time. So again, I think that the personal financial position is the most important thing. Now, in 2024 specifically, right now that I've couched all of that and saying don't time the market Start with a plan where you can win in any market condition and trust the plan over the long term. Now I'll predict 2024. First thing I always like to start with is supply. There are about 1.6 million units of housing stock currently under construction in this country. About 975, and by the, that's a lot. That's close to the historic high, right? So uh, on average, we form about a million households per year in this country. Last year, we formed about 230,000 households because in tougher economic times, people tend to group up or whatever, right? There's just lower household formation. This year, the pressure is going to be even higher on the supply front. We saw modest price gains last year, and we saw rent growth actually decline by just under 1%, which is a rare thing for the US economy. In 2024, I'm expecting rent growth 
to continue to decline by a couple percentage points because on average, the US is seeing a ton of new multifamily unit construction hitting the market, which is what competes with everybody for rents. This is a disaster for the multifamily and apartment complex investing space. Those guys are getting crushed. They've seen a 20% to 30% likely decline in asset values from the peak in 2021. And I think they're in for more of a bloodbath in 2024 here. I'm going to release an article to Bigger Pockets that will come out probably before this recording. That's five or 6,000 words describing this pain in great detail, why I believe that that's the case on the multifamily side. On the single family side, we have a pretty cl- a little bit higher than usual, but pretty close to the normal amount of currently under construction supply, about 600,000 homes. Now, these homes that are being built are geographically dispersed across the country, right? So the South and the West are seeing a disproportionate amount of this new construction. And the South and the West in particular are getting crushed right now from a multitude of factors. They have all this new supply. There's a huge bet on inbound migration which I worry for folks in those areas is a little bit overplayed at this point in time, right? I think all the people who wanted to move out of California to Texas may have done so by now. And that uh, belief that more is coming, again, could be, could be a challenge. You've got huge taxes in those states in the property tax front. And a lot of valuations have soared in the last two years, and those are still catching up. Um, so that's causing uh, taxes to increase in there. And you've got insurance costs rising at crazy rates in both of those states, Texas and Florida in particular, but much of the South and parts of the West overall. So those are causing a lot of pain for operators right now. And I think that if I'm looking at investing in those regions, I'm being very cautious and doing my homework on the supply that's coming in at the very least. And then also checking that against the, do I have some really bullish projections? Because like markets like Phoenix, they got really bullish projections on income and inbound migration, for example. Those may be true, but there's also a supply dynamic and they got a ton of supply coming in. So I'd be really careful and do my homework in those areas. In the Northeast and the Midwest, you have much more muted dynamics from a supply standpoint, right? So you don't have anything special going on um, or a ton of construction. And I don't think you're going to see a lot of um, a much of a decline in rents, you may even see substantial increases in prices and rents in those areas because they're still more affordable than other parts of the country and you don't have the the supply dynamics. On the interest rate front, I think that the markets are crazy right now. And I'll probably be completely wrong and you can play this next year and laugh at me about all of this stuff, of course. But I think that the markets are a little crazy right now. All right, on the interest rate front, the most important interest rate to real estate investors is the 10-year US Treasury. The 10-year US Treasury is hovering around 4% right now. That's important because it's lower than the overnight treasury rate, right? Which is uh, about five and a quarter, five and 5.3%. What this means, usually the 10-year is about 150 basis points higher than the overnight rate in a typical euro curve. So what the market's saying is they expect a recession so deep and so bad that the Fed is going to cut rates by nine times to get it to about two and a half to 3%. I think they're nuts. The Fed is not saying they're going to do that. Yes, the Fed screwed up in 2021 and let inflation get out of control. Since then, they've been the least bad central bank in the world. I love using the word least bad because it offends the fewest people. 
uh, when that. That's a compliment to Jay Powell. I think he's handled this better. Like uh, US is alone among major world economies that is doing all right right now, right? I mean, you can see everyone has an opinion about what all right is, but they're not seeing the devastation that a lot of people predicted. They're seeing asset values crater in the commercial real estate space, for example, but we're not seeing the wealth of you know the middle-class America being eroded right now from those decisions. We're not seeing mass layoffs and they've got a lot of room, room to run. I take them at their word when they say they're going to lower rates three times in 2024. I believe them. If they do that, after that, I think it's anybody's guess, right? In your coin, you're flipping a coin if you think they're going to continue lowering them, keep them the same or raise them. And I think from that point, that means that 10 year is going to climb, right? That uh, 75 bips down puts your uh, from five and a quarter for the overnight rate, puts your overnight rate at four and a half. That puts your 10 year at six if the market stabilized from a long enough time perspective. And that's not crazy in the context of historical interest rates for this country. Right, despite what a lot of people listening to this will say. So I think that there's every possibility that that happens. I don't think the 10 year will get to six, but I think it will climb up and up and up and up probably a hundred basis points over the year. And that's going to continue to hammer your commercial real estate space. But despite all this talk about interest rates, it's not going to hamper your single family housing market nearly as much. And why is that? Explain that. Yeah. Explain that a little more if you would. Yeah, the reason for that is that a 30-year mortgage is tightly correlated with a 10-year treasury, but it's not perfect. There's usually a certain spread between 30-year mortgage rates and the 10-year treasury. Right now, that spread is higher than normal. I think it's by about 75 to 100 bips. I should have had this one ready. People listening, go take a look at this if you're interested. But I believe that as the 10-year rises, that spread will compress and mortgage rates will stay in the high sixes, low sevens throughout the year in 2024. So I think that there's a reasonable chance that US housing stock on average, again, regional differences are going to be the story. They were the story of 2023 and they will be the story of 2024. Some people will feel tons of pain. And some people will see their properties and rents soar, depending on where you are in the country. And I'm betting on the Northeast and the Midwest as uh, as potential places in 2024 for appreciation. I think that um, uh, the Southeast, the Southeast and the West are in for some potential pain in 2024 from a rent and pricing standpoint. So, in states in particular, what states are you? Are you mean like Texas, California? What when you say the areas that will experience pain? What states would those be? I think big markets in Texas and Florida are going to be among the hardest hit. Austin, Texas, I think is in for continued challenges. I think, you know, Tampa, Florida, I think these big metros in in Florida and Texas are the ones there. Now, I am going to commission a study here at Bigger Pockets to see where that supply is hitting because that's where I think you should be the most afraid if you're an investor. Supply is not your friend as a new investor or as an investor in, in this country. I want to specifically talk about your buy box. So you mentioned you're every roughly 18 months, you're making a purchase. Let's talk about like what your buy box looks like and, and how for a new investor, like how they can think about and construct their own buy box to test out a hypothesis. Yeah. So first of all, again, that's 2024, right? So take that how you will as an investor. And despite the fact that I think Denver, Colorado is squarely in the, I'm not loving the prospects for 2024, I plan to buy another property here in Denver in the next year, probably in the later part of the year. But I know that despite my prediction, I could be dead wrong. I could be right about everything and wrong about something else that comes in. And I'll bet you this, that in 30 years, my investment made today in Denver, Colorado is going to perform better than the one in the Midwest 
2024, Midwest is going to perform better. But in the next 10 years, you know, in the next 10 years, almost certainly in the next 20 years, for sure, in my opinion, come back and see me in 20 years, and we'll debate it at that point. But I think that Denver is going to see that price appreciation and Detroit, for example, may not. That's the theory there. My buy box in Denver, I really like big, nice, luxury multifamily. And so my favorite type of property is like a four or five bed duplex on each side. Say more about that. Why is that that you want a big duplex like that? I believe that there's a rise in high income earning renters. I believe that those larger units offer the ability to uh, diversify your, your strategies. So for example, you can do a sober living if you wanted, right? You could do a rent by the room strategy and produce a lot more cash flow. They're the type of units I want to live in. And I think that that's important, right? Is that, that I'm buying stuff that I and my family would live in. I literally live in one of these types of duplexes that I'm describing here right now here in Lakewood with my wife and, and our one-year-old baby and our cat. And it's, uh, it's wonderful. So I like that for a number of reasons. I also think that it's closer, it's better cash flow potential. So this property, for example, would be valued at around $750,000 to $800,000. Each side would rent for just over $3,000. The mortgage on that would be about $4,500. And that gives you a pretty good shot at cash flow with a long-term traditional rental strategy, more if you want to get into one of those creative strategies. The price point is also high enough where I'm not competing with folks that are buying their first, you know, their, their first house hack or, or small investment property. So that's the kind of stuff that I, I particularly like and feel like there's a, a reasonable competitive edge and the kind of thing that I'll probably buy um, here in 2024. So is that who you rent to? Is it like sober living homes and do you rent out rooms by the room or talk to me about that a little bit more? Like you mentioned those strategies of why you like that. Is that how most of your portfolio looks? So that's what I'm going to buy this year. Most of my portfolio looks like what I bought uh, my very first duplex, two bed, one bath units, one bed, one bath units, up and coming areas, those types of things. So I did very well with that strategy for a long time, but it is a little bit more intensive from a management perspective. And I'm preferring the kind of B plus A neighborhood investing these days as an investor. I do have to put more cash down um, in order to purchase those. You know, 25% on a $800,000 property is a significant chunk of cash. But I, I prefer that personally from, uh, and believe it's the right approach for me today. My other units typically, again, are in up and coming areas, duplexes. I have uh, two other duplexes in the Denver area, a triplex and a quadplex. The quadplex is one bed, one bath and rents each unit for $1,000 a month. So a very different type of property than what I'm describing to you here. And my tenants in the nice properties, they're actually five individuals that got that pulled together to rent the property on, on one lease. They've been great. They live next door to me, always uh, um, take care of the place, quiet, nice neighbors, help us out from time to time. And you focus strictly in Denver. You wouldn't go to Detroit just because of the values or whatever the numbers might look attractive right now. Your, your long-term thesis is strictly Denver, correct? Yeah, I may change that at some point in the future. But to, to this point, I've only invested in Denver because of that thesis I just told you about. I, I'm making a long-term bet on appreciation of Denver, Colorado. I think people can live anywhere they want in the world these days and do a lot of jobs. And they choose to live in Denver for the access to the mountains, the great city that we've got here, beautiful weather and sunshine, and um, the four major sports teams. Great. Just overall, like there's a lot of things to like about living out here. Mountain view out our window. So I think that that's fundamentally my my long-term bet. And I can de-risk the portfolio to a substantial degree as I'm operating it. I can go to a property, change the locks and paint if I need to, 
um, if times get tough. I can move on from my property manager and self-manage the portfolio. I think those are huge advantages that I'd be throwing away if I invested out of state. But if I was going to go out of state, I'd be going in 2024 and I was looking for cash flow, for example, specifically, I might be going to upstate New York or one of those Midwestern cities like Cleveland. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I saw a list just last night about you know the top markets, and I think Buffalo was number one. Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland were all top 10, I believe. So it's, it's interesting to me, but I totally agree with you just fa- staying hyper-focused on the market where you live so you have that control over, over your uh, asset. I can't imagine investing out of state, honestly. 
I think that if you're going to invest at a state, it's got to be for cash flow. It's got to be in a place that you believe is long-term appreciation prospects. And you know, like a good a good reason to invest out of state is, hey, I live in San Francisco and I make one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, and it's just it's never going to happen here, right? It's going to take me seven years to do that, and I'm unwilling to move to one of these other locations. So I think there's good reasons to do that. But I think that if you're anywhere but maybe you know pockets of California where it's totally unattainable, maybe New York City, uh, maybe a, a select number of other cities. It's good to bias towards your local market if you believe in the long-term thesis for that local market because of those risk mitigation factors that I just went through. I think it drives returns over time. Everybody has problems in this business. And you know, uh, if you can self-manage and operate your way out of them, you're not going to enjoy doing it. But you're going to, I think, thank yourself that it was you know, within a half an hour drive of your home. So you followed this steady, maybe unsexy path. I think I've heard you describe it as unsexy, but it works, right? This path with real estate towards financial independence. Looking back on your journey, is there anything you would have done differently? I watched dozens or hundreds of people race past me from a real estate perspective, just buy tons of property in the late 20 teens and you know uh, create huge amounts of wealth so like obviously you know you know in hindsight you know 2020 maybe there's some different bets you'd make but one of the things i found is that many of those same folks could never stop right once you start doubling the penny it gets very addictive and a lot of those folks are the ones who transitioned into fund management and capital raising and bought tons of apartment complexes hundreds of millions tens of millions of property and they are screwed right now Right, they're gonna like they're at risk of losing all of their investor capital in many of these cases, and there's nothing they can do. In an, like you know, you can run an apartment complex perfectly in Austin, Texas. You can have your your marketing dialed in, your operations dialed in. Your asset value is just worth forty percent less than it was two years ago because the market's crushing you between interest rates and the new supply coming on the market. And so, I think that what I am proud of or what I'm confident in with my approach is this concept of a strong financial position, slow and steady. You know, 20% returns are great, but they're not great if you compound at 20% and then go bust uh, with $100 million. I'll take my 12% or whatever it is that I'm getting on my portfolio. I should probably go back and compute it and appraise everything here to understand that, but at a lower rate and likely be able to compound it forever without real any, any material risk of, of a BK, bankruptcy BK. Yeah, I know you're a fan of uh, Warren Buffett and he's got that one quote. It's like rule number one is never lose money. Rule number two is never forget rule number one. And to your point, you also another idea of Buffett is buying below intrinsic value. Do you see coming up like opportunities in any real estate asset class where there'll be opportunities to buy below asset or you know replacement cost? Cuz there it's been tough to do that recently. Yeah, you know, so I think that in 2024, as all of this inventory comes online, especially in the multifamily space, you're going to see something really interesting opening up. And I think that's where people are going to start trading in effect. And, you know, one person's pain is another person's gain, right? So I think there's a risk of cap rates going from prime multifamily cap rates going from 5% where they are now to 7 or 8%. That would be an enormous destruction in value. But at that point, you know, now you're getting a seven or eight percent cash on cash return from a high quality multifamily asset. I think that's a very realistic possibility. I'm not saying it will happen, but I I wouldn't bet against. I'm not betting against it at this point in time in 2024. And I, I think that could be option a possibility at, at the end of the year. You had mentioned a little bit about your portfolio, and it sounded like you do some index fund investing. I mentioned I did this interview last week, and, and this guy mentioned the 401k. Another idea that he had was he he didn't 
want to do any index fund investing at all because he felt he had much more control in real estate, much more control over his ultimate returns than he ever would with investing passively in an index fund. Can you kind of share some of your thoughts about that? I think that's a great question. So I approach personal fund. I think there are two conflicting but simultaneously true philosophies about building wealth. One is that you need a formula to get to financial freedom. And the other is that you need to seize opportunity when it smacks you in the face. And those are at odds, right? I, you know, we'll discuss this, you know, with couples, for example. And one individual in the couple will be like, no, we need to put all the money in cash and throw it into the business. And the other will be like, we need to be investing in the 401k and stock market. And I think they're both right. And I think that's what how I've approached my personal financial situation is there's the foundation and the consistent formula that moves me towards financial freedom, where every month I'm putting more into index funds. I'm putting more into a savings that are going into the next rental property. And I'm consistently applying that formula that I know has a good high probability, has a very high probability of getting me to my end state over the next couple of years. And there are opportunities that you need to seize in life and go after with your time and resources, right? Like the jumping ship from my corporate job to bigger pockets, for example, like a, a real estate opportunity that comes up in life that's an all-in bet for that very first one, like my first duplex was. So I think that I completely agree with him. However, for me, I need both. I need to, I need to feel like I'm, I have a formulaic approach that will get me there no matter what. And that I'm taking a couple of quality shots uh, that can move me towards my goal. When I was early in my journey, we didn't talk about this. Every quarter, every 90 days, I was trying to take a new shot, if you will. There was the house hack. I tried to start a winter gloves for driving e-commerce business. I thought about winter tire rentals as a theme uh, here. For the, none of them worked. I drove for Uber. I was a tutor right, and, and, and wanted to get into that so I could start a tutoring company for that. So none of those things worked, but they didn't require large amounts of dollars for me to test out from an ideation standpoint. So I agree with what he's saying and feel that there's a formula that many people, myself as part of that, need. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything outside of real estate and index funds that you also are investing in? My biggest investment is Bigger Pockets, uh, the company I lead. So I invest significantly in it and am a, a big participant and feel very strongly about its success as a company. So that's, that's a huge position in my portfolio where most of, I would say, the risk is one private company right? that I feel really, really passionately and strongly about. And then on top of that, I also invest in hard money notes. So as a rental property investor, you know, some people... A hard money note is when a, someone is going to fix and flip a property, they will borrow a high at a high interest rate, usually 10 to 14% interest, depending on how much cash they put into the deal. And then they will fix up the property. Um, they'll do they'll complete the project as fast or you know, they'll either new build or fix and flip or do a major remodel or, or somehow otherwise stabilize and transform the asset. And then at that point they'll sell after they fix the transform the asset, they'll sell it or refinance it and pay back the loan. So these are short-term loans, kind of um, six months to two years typical time horizon, high interest rate. And I like them because I feel like, hey, if I'm going to lend to somebody, let's say they're doing a $400,000 fix and flip, or they're buying a property for 400 grand, going to put 100 into it and fix and flip it. Well, if I can lend on that and the worst case scenario plays out, I can foreclose and finish the deal myself, place a tenant, and now I own a property for 20 to 30% off, if you will, from the purchase price. So I like that a lot. And that, that produces a lot of simple interest yield, which is very freeing. So I, I have a couple of those notes and plan to continue to expand that position. Now, are these like towards friends that are in the business or people that you've just met through your bigger pockets contacts or where's your network come or how do you do the underwriting for these loans? 
So there's an industry called hard money lending, and hard money lenders typically have funds. So they'll borrow from an institution 30, you know, or, or raise capital from investors like myself, and they'll raise 30, 40 million dollars, maybe have a line of credit with a bank for another 10 million dollars, and then they will lend out those funds in the, you know, to various borrowers. So if you have a 50 million dollar fund and you're lending out $500,000 hard money notes, that's 100 loans. If you want to do more than 100 loans, you have to sell some of those loans or let them mature. And so they often the hard money lenders because they originate get points, they make 1 or 2% profit each time they originate a note. They're very anxious to do as much volume as possible. So you got to be careful because you want to make sure you're not buying the notes that they don't want on their balance sheet at that point. And you got to do your due diligence. But I I like doing that because hard money lenders that have an established reputation and a portfolio of loans typically have a process for doing due diligence. They'll send me 1099s, uh, handle all of the the payments and those types of things, and give me rights to foreclose directly if I don't like working with them. And so I I shop with hard money lenders available through the Bigger Pockets platform. Nice. So you've got a pretty diversified portfolio with all the stuff that you've got going on. I wanted to hear a little bit more about your CEO of Bigger Pockets. I wanted to hear what your average day is, like running the company, managing your own portfolio. You've got a young, a young kid right now. How do you manage all that and what are your days looking like lately? Yeah, so I'm a big planner and goal setter. My wife and I sit down once a quarter and go through our vision. We update it um, and tweak it. Doesn't move quite as much anymore, but it used to move a lot. Well, we think we want this. We think we want this. Um, we kind of have settled in that that provides a lot of clarity. For, for those. I then have a set of goals that I want to do for the year and a set of goals that I want to do for each quarter. I translate that into a weekly planning session on Sunday evenings with my wife where I say, here are the big three areas that I want to move forward. And here are the things that I want to do this week to get those things done. You know, There's a whirlwind that goes on at work every week that can throw you, blow you completely off course. But this simple ritual of just setting once a week, getting back on track uh, has been very, very powerful for me because most weeks I'm able to get most of the things that I set as the priorities done or at least advanced. Sometimes it's literally this one email. Got to send this email to this person to begin this this series of events cascading. I get that done on Sunday nights and that that helps. So what does my day-to-day look like um, from there? Well, Mondays, I usually leave free to focus on the big quarterly priorities that are coming up that particular quarter. Tuesdays is when I typically record podcasts and create content. Wednesdays, I typically do my one-on-ones. Thursday is a catch-all for like internal operating reviews, board meetings, or whatever else that I got to do as a, as a CEO. I have a lot of 30-minute calls with you know various folks, whether they're sponsors or new potential partners or customers or whatever. I try to meet a customer once a week for coffee and just kind of, hey, what's your real estate journey? How are, we, how are we doing? What do you like? What do you don't like? Give me the goods on Bigger Pockets. Um, I like to do that over coffee and beer. Uh, I find that you get really good information after three beers with a lot of people. And then Friday, I have a one-on-one with my boss, our chairman, um, an operating partner, and we have more kind of catch-all time. I also get a lot of content done. So that's that's my typical week now. But in Q2, that will completely change um, because I like to reset my calendar every quarter to fo- make sure I'm focusing on the most important important stuff. I wanted to hear about like the transition when Josh and Brandon left Bigger Pockets. What was that like for you taking over and, and filling their filling their shoes rather? Yeah, so you know, it's been interesting when Josh stepped away in late 2017 and I was, you know, by the, the other people in the company, I was actually elected as acting CEO at that point. That was really interesting dynamic because Josh had to step away from personal reasons. We didn't really have a formal succession plan. I didn't have the ability to fire promote change compensation for these folks. But for a period of months, we operated the business and were able to drive things forward. And it was a democratic election in a sense, like everybody had bigger pockets, like 
had a vote on who, who should run the company? Among the small leadership team at that point. So it was not a company-wide election, if you will. But that was interesting. And a few months later, Josh named me president and I had those powers officially. I reorganized the business at that point in time. And um, some folks didn't like that reorganization. But I was like, hey, if I'm going to be running things, I'm going to make sure I know what everyone does and I know why that function exists. And I, I couldn't have said that for you know five or six different roles. And so some of those people loved the new role and, and thrived in the new position. And some said, nope, I'm out. And uh, we actually called that the, the bigger apocalypse at the time. That was very challenging for me. Um, because there was uh, some turnover because people didn't like the, the changes I was making in those first couple of months. 2018 ended up being a fantastic year for us. And we recapitalized with a private equity group out of Omaha, Nebraska called McCarthy Capital. And they brought in a chairman of the board uh, who was kind of my boss. And he was a, a mentor, tough you know, coach. Hey, here's what world-class looks like. And you're not it right now with these things. In a, you know, he, would never, he never said it like that. But I knew I was like, oh boy, I've only had my experience. I haven't had the experience of working with 20 other CEOs and you know, 50 different chief financial officers, whatever. And so over the next five years, um, we developed a strategy for bigger pockets, we understood our market much more clearly. We put together a leadership team with, you know, I learned what good and bad looks like from various leadership team positions. And I went through the pain involved in reorganizing the business and putting those roles together. And we grew the company over that period of time as well. Today, we uh, are thriving. We're as, as strong as ever as a company and, and have a uh, ton of different hosts, talent authors uh, representing a variety of different viewpoints. And I think we've really shown that. But I think the beauty of Bigger Pockets is, is it's not about my views on real estate, right? 10 of our other hosts will disagree violently with what I just said about the markets and all those kinds of things. It's the community and crowdsourced feedback of people who try their best, think they know what they're doing, and disagree and debate each other and know that they're probably going to be wrong on a variety of different things and that there's always new strategies popping up. Yeah, the community's huge. I mean, I, that was such an important part for me in my learning early on when I, I had a pro membership and just being able to bounce ideas off of people. It was, it's just like invaluable. Absolutely. I think that's the power of it is, is it's not one man's secret sauce to real estate investing because there's no such thing. It's the crowdsourced wisdom of the community and the new tactics that are constantly popping up to make money. Before we wrap up, I wanted to do a, a quick fire round if we could. So I wanted to hear what your most uh, controversial or contrarian take on real estate is. I think it's the risk of a 30 plus percent additional cratering in multifamily asset values in 2024. Large apartment complexes, I think, are one of the most at-risk asset classes in this country right now. What are you currently reading? I see a bunch of books behind you. I wanted to hear what you're currently reading. I'm currently reading Number Go Up about the uh, crypto boom and bust. And what's your takeaway so far? Is it Bitcoin specific or is it just the whole arena of crypto? I was not a fan of crypto. I've tried to read both sides of the argument. I think that the side that is most rational to me for crypto fans is the one espoused by uh, Seyfedin Amus from the Bitcoin standard, which in there are Bitcoin maximalists. If you're going to bet on crypto, to me, it makes sense that Bitcoin specifically would be the winner. That would be your you know, hard currency that would potentially replace fiat currency long-term. All of the other cryptos have never made sense to me. This book confirms, I think, that skepticism and I think exposes the Wild West of just how many scams and absurdities were going on just a few years ago in that space. Yeah, that was a game changer for me too, reading the Bitcoin Standard by Safedine. I had a bunch of different 
you know, quote unquote, crypto speculations. <laughs> and after reading that, I stuck strictly to Bitcoin. It's like, there's going to be a winner take all. And, you know, there might be some use cases for a, a couple others, but in general, there's going to be a winner take all. And it's pretty clear, I think, what that winner will be. Yeah. The main thesis, and I haven't finished the book, so we'll see how, how it ends. I probably should know this, but is around how you know a lot of these coins claim to be stable coins and were backed by US dollars, but then they weren't actually backed by US dollars. So once something that's supposed to be worth a dollar is worth even 98 cents, the whole thing collapses because why would you be the last two people out of 100 to leave your money into it and not get your money back? Yeah. The unfortunate thing I think is like, there's so much of the crypto stuff that's conflated with Bitcoin that uh, that's a whole nother topic and a whole nother rabbit hole. The reason I don't invest in Bitcoin, even if you know I, I think that the Bitcoin maximalist um, approach is the most reasonable take on crypto overall, is because at the end of the day, crypto or Bitcoin would be a currency. What would I use the currency to purchase? I'd use the currency to purchase things that I want for my lifestyle or assets that produce income and are likely to appreciate in real value like real estate. So I'm just like, I can invest in Bitcoin or I can purchase rental properties. And which one is the better bet long term? You know, we'll, we'll see. There's a case where Bitcoin takes over the entire world economy and becomes worth, you know, the value of all of the cash in the world and what goes up soaring in value. But even at that end state, I would then use Bitcoin to purchase rental properties and receive payments in what Satoshi's uh, or whatever. So I, you know, I think that's that ends up being my how I've kind of rationalized this whole world of crypto into. Yeah, I'm just going to stay out of it because the goal is to have the cash flowing properties at the end, anyways. There's an argument that's made that that there's a lot of monetary premium that's in real estate that Bitcoin will, well, there, who knows what percent, but it will suck some of that monetary premium up. But yeah, it's hard to know. Like time will tell for sure. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. We all have to make our bets and, and it's a risk no matter, no matter what you do. But uh, there, like you said, there is no right answer for everybody. Scott, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time. Do you have another book in you? Is there anything coming out that uh, we can look forward to? I'm not personally working on a book right now. My kind of passion project, if you will, is uh, something for bigger pockets we're calling passive pockets. So because so many of these, you know, because we're seeing this pain in the commercial real estate space and a lot of folks have put together syndications in the space to raising capital, I think a lot of investors didn't really know what folks charge for fees or what they, you know, um, how, what the business models look like or how to underwrite them or the risks inherent in the commercial real estate world. And so we want to um, really put together a product to educate folks on how to think about those passive investments. We really focused on the single family, small multifamily duplexes that people personally own and operate and not as much on these um, larger funds and passive investments. So that's what we're working on. I don't know if a book will come out of it, but it, it'll certainly be a lot of content. Passive pockets. Cool. I'll, uh, I'll have to check that out. So for this, for people that want to find out more about you, find out more about Bigger Pockets, just what you guys are up to, what's the best way for them to do that? You can just find me on Bigger Pockets, uh, uh, post in the forums and tag me. You just type in the at symbol and Scott Trench, uh, it'll come up. Uh, you can ask a question there and I'm happy to respond and engage all day. Cool. Scott, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. This has been fun. Thank you, Patrick. This is great. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to follow Millennial Investing on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on our episodes. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.